Tiffany Dong and I'm APC's Women's Coordinator. Our panelists today are representatives from Sexperts and the Reproductive Justice Health Center. Uh, feel free to introduce yourselves. Hi everybody, my name is Audrey and I'm a second year international student at UCLA and an advisor at the Reproductive Justice Health Center. Today I'll be explaining like the services and information that the RJHC provides at the end of the session in addition to discussing like emergency contraception and plan B misconceptions in greater detail. Um, and finally, my name is Elsa Dubo. I'm also a, a UCLA student and I am this year's co-director of UCLA Sexperts, a committee dedicated to educating the UCLA community about sexual health, pleasure, gender-based issues, communication, and consent. I'm here to talk about different kinds of birth control, the dark history of its development, and how that history has influenced its current perception um, in our culture and the public sphere. A little disclaimer before we start, uh, today we're going to be discussing some sensitive issues behind birth control and the exploitation of women in the past. If the topics being discussed get too overwhelming, please feel free to pause and take some time to yourself. We're going to be discussing a variety of subjects in addition to the misconceptions behind birth, birth control. As Elsa and Audrey mentioned before, um, some of the subjects are the history of birth control development, as well as other contraceptive measures that are available in the United States. With that being said, uh, let's get started. So I want to discuss a bit about why APC is involved in this specifically. You might be wondering what does the Asian Pacific Coalition have to do with uh, misconceptions behind birth control? Um, I think it's important for APETA persons to understand and learn more on the subject of sex. It's a very taboo subject in the Asian American community, which leads to why birth control has many misconceptions surrounding it, especially in the APETA community. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up, Tiffany, just because um, the birth control throughout the United um, in its development in the United States and our history has long been associated with um, experimentation, eugenics, um, and all kinds of ties to the United States history of colonialism, um, and it has some serious repercussions um, and trauma that it leaves on communities of color. And so I think it's incredibly important that we have these discussions and we have them frequently so that they're out in the open um, and we're really aware of how those things have impacted our culture. So uh, before I get into the history of birth control and how that's developed in the United States and how that contributes to a lot of the myths that still exist today, I just wanna break down really quickly what birth control is, um, the different forms that it takes. And so when we use different words and different language, you have um, a little bit of a vocabulary to get started. So birth control, AKA contraception, is designed to prevent pregnancy and it can work in a variety of different ways. So the first way is preventing sperm from getting to the egg, aka creating some sort of a barrier. Uh, so that can look like condoms or diaphragms um, and in older methods, cervical caps and sponges, but they don't really exist anymore. Um, it can look like keeping an ovary from releasing an egg that could be fertilized like birth control pills, the patch, the shot, the Nuva ring, and also emergency contraceptives. Um, it can look like a physical device which is implanted in the uterus. Um, so this is the IUD or the intrauterine device. Um, and it can last for several years. 
And then the final method is sterilization, which is permanently um, altering, altering someone's ability to reproduce. So there's um, a variety of different ways that this can happen. Um, and so we're going to try our best to tackle all of them um, and how they impact us. Um, so I will be using one word though um, and one abbreviation which is LARC, L-A-R-C, um, which stands for long-acting reversible contraceptives. So that's the IUD and the implant. Um, and the reason that I'm going to be talking about that is because it works in a way that's, or they work in ways that are really different from the pill because it's not just something that you can stop immediately if you don't feel like it's working for you. Um, and so uh, it's, because of its history, it hasn't really been incredibly popular in the United States, um, although that is on the, its use is on the rise. Um, and it is just a very different discussion um, and a different, and it has developed in really different ways than the pill has. Um, but that being said, uh, I'd love to talk about all of them. So um, getting into it and the history of birth control development in the United States, there is actually a very dark history behind how birth control is developed, has developed in the U.S. that contributes to a lot of myths and misconceptions that still exist today. Um, in the modern age, the number of people with uteruses on LARCs, on these long-acting long reversible contraceptives, has climbed. As of 2013, according to federal survey data, 11.6% of self-identified women uh, on birth control opted for LARCs compared to 6% in 2008, and this number is just increasing. Uh, and that's really notable because people in the United States have been slower to choose IUDs compared to other countries uh, because of these misconceptions. Um, and, that they'll, and these misconceptions date back to the um, development of birth control um, starting in the 1960s and 70s, um, and they still last today. So it's really important that we understand where these misconceptions come from. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is called the Dalkin Shield, and it was the um, original IUD, the original device that was inserted in a uterus, and it looked quite different than what the IUD does today. Today the IUD is a T-shaped, very small, like about um, um, an inch or uh, maybe an inch and a half of a little plastic device that is inserted into um, the cervix and it sits there and it prevents pregnancy. Um, and back in the day, um, when it first came out in the 1960s, it acted very differently. And it was a little barb-shaped device. I know, great idea. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, a little, yeah. little shark-shaped um, and much bigger actually than what it was now that was inserted. And it had, there were a lot of issues related to its insertion. Um, and it like, a, a, there were a lot of infections and all kinds of things that were reported. It, but that being said, it was the very first um, lark of the kind. So sales reached in the millions. Every because the option that um that people with uteruses had was either deal with unplanned pregnancy and um all sorts of complications associated with that or try this new experimental thing that has a lot of these side effects but you know if you weigh your if you weigh your options that is better for some people. 
Um, and so there were many difficulties with insertions, many cases of incorrect placement, IUD failure, infections, um, and pregnancy. Uh, fun fact, doctors were really unsure if you were supposed to take it out if you got pregnant. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, and so people got pregnant and then they just kept these devices in. And so that led to oh all sorts of miscarriages and serious, serious problems uh, because more than a dozen um, people died after miscarrying with a Dalkin IUD still inside of them. Um, it created a lot of pelvic inflammatory disease, infertility, like permanent infertility. Um, and uh, the manufacturer actually pulled the product in 1974 and then filed for bankruptcy within a couple years. Um, and then because of that, a, another survey, a federal survey in 1986, revealed that virtually zero people um, used IUDs in the United States um, in 1986. <laughs> None were available on the market. And so the whole IUD craze just died um, for <laughs> a little bit of time. And so you can already see sort of where there's a serious fear that was instilled in our parents and their parents um, surrounding using um, this method. You know, they're like you could insert something and then not even wake up the next morning. That's so completely understandable, like why <laughs> there would be a fear surrounding that. Yeah. Um, and so there were, in addition to that, there were all sorts of um, cultural issues of the United States has a lovely history of um, experimenting on black bodies. Um, and so it naturally, there were several experiments where, um, or, or rather, quote unquote, studies um, using black women with the Dalkin shields um, and sterilizing them for life and um, just contributing to the history of the United States. Um, disrespecting people of color in the healthcare industry. Um, so this is just us setting the stage. Uh, a part two to this that really doesn't get a whole lot better is um, when we talk about the pill and the history behind it. And that one's a little bit more complicated, um, but it pretty much boils down to um, even worse abuses. Um, on people of color. And so when birth control first came out in the 1960s, it had 150 micrograms of estrogen, which is a ridiculously high dose. That's 10 times the amount of estrogen that birth control has now. Um, and the thing is, even now you see, you hear about all of these side effects that women talk about of depression and spotting and all sorts of issues. Uh, just imagine 10 times that. Um, so side effects were really, really common. So the highest dose for reference um, available on the market now in the United States is 50 micrograms, but it is extremely rarely prescribed often for different issues related to hormone imbalances, not just to do with pregnancy itself um, and pregnancy prevention. Um, ultra, quote unquote, ultra low dose pills have about 20 micrograms. Um, so that's uh, a really common um, a really common type of birth control. If you ever hear about things like the mini pill, um, that's usually what that looks like. The combo pills, which are the most common kind that contain two kinds of hormones, have about 30 micrograms of estrogen, um, but still a significantly less um, than when these pills first came out. 
um, how they got developed started out with a lovely dude um, <laughs> named Gregory C. Pincus, who was the former assistant professor of general physiology at Harvard. Um, and he was purely interested in developing a pill for science, not for reproductive freedom, not so that um, people could have a choice about when they wanted to get pregnant or do any sort of family planning. He, he even said so very specifically in his interviews of, I'm not interested in giving women a choice. And he did clarify for the record, I'm not interested in giving men a choice either before you get the wrong idea. But I, I think maybe he had the wrong idea about all of that. Um, Absolutely. So I yeah, and I don't really know if, um, if that really makes up for it. Um, and he worked with another professor at Harvard, um, and they tested the birth, their um, original birth control pill on mentally ill Massachusetts women in the 1950s, and then later in clinical trials, if that's really what you want to call them, on Puerto Rican women um, used as guinea pigs. And I am going to include a trigger warning in this one before I talk about it because it's really, really disturbing. Um, just the degree to which these women were used as lab animals um, and how their humanity was deprived of them, how their, their choices were deprived of them. Um, it's really, really sad to, to hear about. Um, so Pincus, um, and later uh, Clarence Gamble of Procter and Gamble um, believed that um, Puerto Ricans and others living in poverty should be wiped out in a total eugenic sense of the word to make room for more quote unquote fit members of the population. And they used birth control as part of that vision. Birth control centers became, um, were developed under the New Deal um, in Puerto Rico, and then they later became um, recruitment grounds for the, these clinical trials. And I'm going to use that phrase really, really liberally here, because um, that's how they were they were described, but that's really not how they operated. And by all modern standards, they were completely unethical. Um, so there were Gamble um, of Procter and Gamble was also deeply involved in Puerto Rico's policy of encouraging women to undergo sterilization as a form of birth control. And ultimately, approximately one third of Puerto Rican women were sterilized, many involuntarily, under these policies that pressured women um, and people with uteruses to undergo hysterectomies after a second childbirth. Um, and so, in these clinical trials, in addition to sterilization, poor women were given extremely strong formulations um, of the drug without being told that they were taking part in a trial or any risks they would face. And three women died just during the test phase and their deaths were never investigated. Um, all of that was swept under the rug and the first pill came to the United States um, in the early 60s, and it was called Inovid, and it was marketed as safe and clinically tested. Um, oh my given, gosh. Given everything that we just talked about, and people had no idea that it was just so much more complicated than that. Um, that being said, it was a similar situation to the IUD. 
and people were desperate for some form of discreet birth control. You know, they, they don't have to talk, they, um, they don't have to go to their religious leaders or their family or any sort of pressure and they can just make the choice for themselves for that first time. Um, and that was a really big deal. And so when Inovi came out in 1957, it was a huge hit and um, within 10 years, six million people in the United States were on the pill. Um, and like people were willing to do almost anything, like going through the risk of side effects, going through the possible blood clots and everything in exchange for that discreet and inexpensive, effective birth control. Um, and so, you know, people like to say that the Anovid did a good thing for reproductive justice and reproductive health um, by ushering in this new era of sexual liberation and sexual health, but a lot of historians really dispute that and say that we were well on our way to a sort of um, sexual health revolution before the pill came along. Um, and so even today, you know, the pill side effects are still not completely understood. Um, for example, it's really like um, only the, the first major study that really started to take a look at depression as a side effect for the pill came out in 2016 surveying people from um i think it was 2010 to 2016 um and really documenting that birth control was a very or birth control caused um in plenty of users um some serious depressive side effects and um it's this depression and these mood swings and all of these related um, mental health side effects that have driven the dose lower and lower and lower. Um, but for a lot of people, that's still really difficult to deal with. Um, and so that also just this whole, all of this sort of complicated intergenerational trauma uh, that is associated with all of these sterilizations and, and clinical trials, if you, if you call them that, um, was placed upon our parents and their parents and and um, and people with uteruses as a whole and while a lot of those side effects and things don't exist today you know if you take the pill you're not going to die anymore there's still so much trauma and so much fear associated with it um, that really really influences what we look for in birth control and how skeptical we are of it. Yeah, and so there's just um, a lot of misconceptions um, that still exist because of it and, and myths that while they're not a reality anymore, um, in our minds um, and in our history, they are. Thank you for that very informative and terrifying lesson on the history behind birth control and how it's come to what it is today. Uh, this this history is so valuable to know because not only does it add to the laundry list of the United States' history of exploiting um, people of color, um, vulnerable women, vulnerable people with uteruses, it's just, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear about. Um, knowing all of this, we're finally going to go into the actual um, misconceptions behind birth control after knowing what has fueled all these misconceptions, what allows these misconceptions to continue after all this time.
Yeah, so I think, like, so as was mentioned earlier, definitely the dark and exploitative and terrible history concerning, like, the abuse of people of color in the healthcare, in the development of healthcare products contributes to a lot of these misconceptions. And that is something most of us probably haven't heard of prior to this, but maybe we recognize also, like, modern forms of things that actually perpetuate these misconceptions. Like, for example, like, you know, taking a look at the high school sex education that we've all received, it is actually, like, pretty different depending from which part of the United States you came from and largely non-comprehensive. So I think that there are two current problems with that that actually fuels these misconceptions. Firstly, like, there's a lot of misleading information or information that is just plainly speaking extremely inaccurate or secondly the second problem would be that there is also a large focus on abstinence as the sole means of contraception that one can practice in many areas as well so if you want to find out more about this i would strongly like we we would strongly urge you to actually check out john oliver's video on sex education in 2015 as well as a box article reviewing it um, for example, did you know that like only 22 states in the USA mandate that kids receive sex education and of all those 22 states, only 13 require that the information presented be medically accurate, which I think it's crazy because we, we don't accept history classes where, you know, um, the information can be partially inaccurate. So it makes no sense that the standard be applied to sex education in general. But the second thing that actually contributes to a lot of misconceptions is intergenerational trauma or you know parents that entirely avoid having like the so-called talk with you or, or like you know cloaking it in a lot of euphemism because of maybe things like religion because of cultural stigma surrounding sexually active persons etc and that can also be a huge barrier that you might recognize in your personal life concerning why you don't um, have all the information about birth control and finally, if you're a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, I think that there's even less discussion surrounding sexual education that's actually relevant to you. Um, so I would like to direct your attention to like some resources on campus that can actually help you out with that. For example, the LGBT Resource Center at UCLA, you can actually find their website online, as well as the Campus Assault Resources and Education Center, otherwise known as CARE, um, that are that also provides like an inclusive environment for LGBT people to um, LGBT members on campus to actually receive access to information like this. And I would also like to add that the Reproductive Justice Healthcare Center is actually planning to release more information surrounding LGBT inclusive healthcare providers later on in the school year. So um, you can look out for that as well. Thank you so much, Audrey, for discussing the state of sex education education in the United States and providing all those resources. Uh, I'm sure that'll be very helpful for many people out there. Uh, so after discussing all of the history and um, stigmas that fuel the misconceptions behind birth control, I'd like to go into what some of these misconceptions actually are. So there's uh, a misconception that birth control will imbalance hormones and actually make you crazy. Um, the fact of the matter is the hormones found in birth control are actually similar to a person's natural hormones. 
actually stress has been found to have a greater effect on your hormones than birth control. Um, if you're concerned about the ways that birth control might affect your hormones, you can feel free to talk to your healthcare provider about low dosage uh, hormonal birth control or even non-hormonal birth control options, including the IUD. Um, and if I can jump in there, there's also some other good benefits um, to hormonal birth control that are just outside of pregnancy prevention. Um, like a lot of people can manage period pain um, and uh, any symptoms of pelvic, pelvic inflammatory disorder um, and all sorts of uh, different pain-related issues. Um, that being said, hormones don't work for everyone, um, and birth control often is sort of a little bit of a battle of over many years of finding a method that works for you. Um, really what it requires most of all is just a support system um, in staying with it several for many different options. It takes sometimes months to really level out and, and figure out how those hormones actually impact you, which can be stressful in itself um, and cause its own problems. But that being said, it's still, it's still worth it to, to stick with it um, and find something that works for you. Yeah, I definitely think it's important to stress that these methods may not work for everyone. Everyone is going through this journey together. And whether you decide to explore taking birth control or not, um, it's always going to have a different effect on everyone's body. We're all unique in that sense. And you shouldn't be afraid to continue that journey. Uh, I know it may be difficult if you don't have a solid support system, but I highly encourage everyone out there to explore their options and um, truly dive into uh, researching this um, for yourself. Another misconception that I've heard before is that the birth control pills cause cancer. There's actually no evidence looking, linking birth control pills to cancer. Um, some birth control options, including the patch, ring, and IUD, are actually so shown to reduce the risk of ovarian and uterine cancer. Continuing on to our next misconception, will birth control affect my ability to have children in the future? Research actually has shown that long-term and even short-term birth control methods do not affect your future fertility uh, unless it's the Dalkin method that Elsa mentioned in the past. Very temporarily, Depo-Provera, aka the shot, uh, which is just something, is an injection that you take um, every three months. And then once you stop taking it, it, for, it takes about up to a year to sort of um, get back to normal fertility levels, but still long-term, um, like really long-term, has no impact on your fertility. People with uteruses who have an IUD and have it removed can get pregnant. All birth control methods available uh, BC14s are completely reversible. They will not prevent your ability to have children in the future, and fertility varies from person to person. Um, birth control doesn't affect your ability to have babies when you're ready for them, um, but untreated sexually transmitted infections, STIs, can. Uh, that's why doubling up and using condoms with your primary birth control is very important to prevent STIs and pregnancy. I'm so glad you like brought that up, Tiffany, because I think we should also talk about like some of the misconceptions behind 
other contraceptive measures, specifically emergency contraceptives. So like what Elsa covered earlier in her overview, emergency contraceptives include things like the morning after pill, as well as another pill called Ella and a copper IUD. Um, or like actually IUDs in general. Um, so I think for this, for the, for, for sorry, <laughs> Sorry, for the purpose of this podcast session, we're going to be discussing the morning after pill in greater detail because it is the, currently the most accessible for college students. So what is the morning after pill? It's basically a levonorgestrel morning after pill that includes brand names that you might have heard of, things like Plan B, One Step, Plan B, One Step, Take Action, my way and the after pill, which can lower your chance of getting pregnant by 75% to 89% if you take it within three days after unprotected sex. So um, currently, the reason why Plan B is the most accessible for college students is because it doesn't require a prescription. So numerous sites actually will stress to you that the Coppola IUD and Ella tend to work better, but because they require a prescription or a doctor to implant them within you, so um, it's definitely a lot less accessible than Plan B. So let's talk a little about the cost and points of access for the Plan B. Um, actually, it's, it's free with Medicaid and with most insurance if you can get a prescription for it. Without insurance, it costs about $35 to $50 in stores and pharmacies and $21 to $50 online. So in-store vendors includes a lot of your common um, pharmacies and retail stores like CVS, Target, Walgreens, and Walmart. And online vendors uh, include sites like afterpill.com or The Pill Club. And um, so that is for it's, if it's not an emergency and you just want to have some emergency contraceptives on hand, you can actually just source that from online sites because it may be cheaper. Uh, at UCLA on campus, Plan B One Step is available at the UCLA Safe Sex vending machines at the A-level of the Ackerman Union and a mailing center on the Hill for about $20. So I want to start out by addressing one of the most common myths about Plan B or the morning after pill, which is that it's equally effective for everyone. I th um, so actually, the fact is that in fact, morning after pills may not work for some groups of people as effectively. So for example, if you weigh 155 pounds or more, the copper IUD or Ella may be better options for you, but they do require a prescription um, and the copper IUD has to be inserted by your medical provider. If, if you happen to be on campus at UCLA, the ASH Center has same-day walk-in appointments available so that you can actually get a lot of other prescription emergency contraceptives as soon as possible, which is important because the other thing that actually affects the effectiveness is how many days after sex that you are taking it. So note that you can take like Plan B, My Way, and other morning after pills up to five days after unprotected sex, but the longer you wait to take it, the less effective it becomes. And the second myth that surrounds um, morning after pills is that there are serious side effects, like for example, infertility, or like more minor side effects like nausea. So in, given the history of development surrounding like the morning after pill. It's currently been developed to be quite safe and side effects aren't super common. So there are no serious reports out of the millions of people who have taken it. Um, however, there are minor side effects. Like for example, it'll be normal for your next period to be different from what you're used to. It may come earlier or later, maybe heavier or lighter or more spotty. You may also get like an upset stomach 
or feel nausea or dizziness or have tender breasts for a short while after taking the pill. And if you throw up within two hours of taking it, it won't work and you, you will have to take it again. Um, it's also kind of important to note that there is a difference between the abortion pill and the morning after pill. So if you're already pregnant and take plan B or other forms of emergency contraception, even if you don't know that you're pregnant, like it won't hurt you, but it also won't it also wouldn't hurt like the pregnancy. Um, there's another myth surrounding access, which is that, for example, you need to be of a certain age, you need to get the permission of your parents, or you need a prescription. And currently in the United States, this is not the case. You can buy it over the counter without a, pres- without a prescription at drugstores or pharmacies. Um, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. And sometimes it may be locked up or kept behind the counter, so you may have to ask the pharmacist or store clerk for help getting it, but you don't need to show your ID or have a prescription for it. Um, additionally, I just want to add that you, if you feel, like a lot of people have a lot of anxiety concerning the high getting, like purchasing emergency contraception for the first time, so consider going with a trusted friend or family member to buy it if that makes you feel better the last myth that i really want to discuss is that people may have the misconception that you should only get emergency contraception after you've had your whoops moment like for example if the condom broke you forgot to take your pill or insert your ring or apply the patch or your diaphragm slipped anything like that but the fact is that there are a bunch of other reasons why you might want to get emergency contraception. For example, if withdrawal goes wrong or you or you happen to be like under the influence of alcohol or you thought you could go without birth control just this once or you went thinking straight, it, no matter the reasons, if you didn't use any protection during sex and you don't want to get pregnant, emergency contraception might be something that you can get. Especially, uh, I mean, as long as it's been like less than five days since that unprotected encounter. As well as for really awful situations like for example like unfortunately rape is like an extremely terrible thing but it does happen so if you've been raped or you've had sex with someone who refused to use another form of contraception consider emergency contraception and the last thing is that you may want to just keep some on hand because it's cheaper to get it in the long term on online sites and also the sooner you take it the more effective it is so it's not a bad idea to actually keep a box of one of the um, emergency contraceptive pill varieties on hand, just in case you need it. I think that the next topic we may want to cover concerns like some of the personal experiences we've had or our friends and family have had. So for example, personally, I knew friends who started using birth control pills to regulate their periods and also prevent unwanted pregnancy. And they suffered from pretty serious mood swings as a result. And that was kind of so unbearable for them like they didn't like that it disrupted their lifestyle so much. So they opted to not take it in favor of other methods of birth control. So I just want to stress that like birth control pills and contraceptives in general can create a lot of different side effects for different people. So the best thing you can do for yourself would definitely be to conduct your own research and explore different options and pick the one that's best for you. Ideally, this would come with consultations with professionals as well if you have other concerns because different people want different things out of their birth control. Yeah, similarly, I have a lot of friends who um, are currently taking birth control um, and they also have experienced very severe side effects. So people with uteruses should know um, birth control doesn't always work for everyone and 
that's okay. You have plenty of methods you can research in the future to more personally suit your needs. Um, I've had friends who started taking birth control uh, because they simply had too heavy periods or um, they got super dizzy on their periods. Um, and that's a very common reason for a lot of people with uteruses to start taking um, birth control. Uh, I know that one of my friends has migraines um, and chronic migraines. And in that case, you should um, mention that to your healthcare provider because they'll often recommend you the mini pill, which is estrogen free um, because that's healthier for people with migraines. Overall, talking to your healthcare provider, making sure um, you're going through this journey safely is very important. Yeah, actually on that note, um, personally, I'm an international student from the country of Singapore. So public sex education is very non-comprehensive and there's a lot of stigma accorded publicly to being like sexually active. And that's why our sex ed has a lot of focus on abstinence and the dangers surrounding contracting an STD and like the only contraception that's actually discussed is the condom. So because of that, um, this is, and actually this is in spite of other methods of birth control and contraception being quite readily and legally available through getting a prescription, although it is unavoidable sometimes that you occasionally encounter very judgmental healthcare professionals, unfortunately. So um, actually in Singapore also recently, an online provider was kind of rolled out. It's called Ease Healthcare, and it emerged as a discreet and relatively inexpensive provider option of consultation, prescription pills, at-home STD test kits, emergency contraception, contraceptive patch, uh, sexual health consultations on things like UTIs or yeast infections. So in some information, my advice is that as an international student, or even if you're a student within the United States and you don't know what your rights are, I would advise you to do three things, which is firstly, check the laws within your country that may affect your access to things like birth control and contraception. Secondly, check your insurance plan for possible coverage of the cost. And thirdly, if you want to use a discrete online provider, check for its reviews and news about it to ensure that it's safe and that it's legitimate. Um, yeah, th- that is fantastic advice, Audrey. Um, I noticed, I like that you mentioned ease healthcare and this sort of rise in online healthcare provider. And especially, you know, now that we're going through all this coronavirus pandemic and dealing with everyone being um, inside and having to change the ways that we look at going just to the doctor for a really simple visit. Um, I've seen, even in the United States, um, a a rise in these online providers specifically for birth control. I've seen a lot of ads on Instagram over the last six months to a year for things like NERCs or the Pill Club, which offer you um, the ability for, I think, something like usually like around $10 a month to get Mm -hmm. birth control delivered to your door. and I actually, I gave it a shot at some point, just, I just wanted to check it out. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do have migraines. So they basically told me, they were like, mm, talk to a doctor. And I um, have a lot of doctors in my family. And so we've, we've had some discussions about this. Um, and personally, what I think is it's not always the best idea to really sacrifice 
um, that consultation with the doctor for the convenience. Um, I truly mm -hmm. think if you have the means um, to go to a doctor in person, if you're on campus, the Ash Center is really easy for this. Um, even if you don't have UC SHIP um, or insurance, it's still, you can still handle this. If you have absolutely no insurance um, and you're struggling to find birth control options and you live in the state of California. Um, if you're a college student, you, class, you um, very likely classify as low income and there is a thing called family pact, which um, you can look up very easily and apply for and it provides insurance specifically for covering reproductive health care um, from getting birth control to um, any sort of emergency contraception, um, abortions, and just um, sexual health checkups as well. Um, so that's something I strongly consider every college student in California look into. Um, but speaking more to the pill club and NERCs in general, um, if you have the means, go to a doctor in person, because while there has been a push to get more over-the-counter birth control options, there are a lot of side effects. Um, and as Tiffany stressed, there are, it's different for everyone. Um, and so the whole send it in the mail and prescribe to you is still really, really fresh right now. And it's really difficult to say if that is actually the best and safest option for you. And since this can be sometimes a big decision um, concerning your health and how it impacts you. Uh, I really stress that you try to stay away from these super convenient options and really take the time and energy to think about these things. Um, personally, I went through my birth control journey at the very beginning of college, not necessarily for the pregnancy prevention element of things. My doctor told me I had really painful periods um, and he told me, he's like, did you know you can just get rid of them? Um, and I was like, whoa, that's awesome. I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. Um, and so I tried that and that was definitely not what happened. Um, I bled for like three months straight. And then I said, this is not spotting that they say to expect. Um, and I just got, I, I tried a variety of different options, um, taking my migraines and everything into consideration. And I just had um, some serious mood swings. I later learned from my mom after I was telling her about all of it, she was like, oh yeah, I can't take birth control. Um, I get really bad um, mood related issues. And I kind of just said, well, that would have been good to know. Um, but here we are. Um, and maybe it's something I'll give a try in the future again um, and stick with a little bit longer. But it was a very tumultuous two years, um, and I definitely learned a lot. Um, and the biggest takeaway that I got from it is really ask your doctor about those side effects, how it usually affects people, do your own research. Um, because I was really not made aware by my healthcare providers what the whole experience would actually end up entailing. Um, and it was, um, it was really difficult to deal with and I felt very unprepared to do that. Um, and so I think if I had known in advance to just be like, what does, what is this going to look like for me in the next six months? You know, long term, what does this look like? What do I have to look out for? Um, and it's definitely worth it to speak up to your doctor if you're feeling like something's wrong. Trust your gut. Um, and if something isn't working for you, 
it's time to give something else a shot and try something new. Um, and there's absolutely no shame in saying that something didn't work for you. Um, so that's my, my biggest advice. Thank you so much, Audrey and Elsa, for joining me in this invaluable discussion. Uh, I really loved having y'all here. Um, I think it'd be a great idea to promote our organizations for people to reference in the future. So I'll start. Um, please follow APC at APC UCLA on all social media platforms for upcoming podcasts and content surrounding the APETA community. Uh, for me, the Reproductive Justice Health Center is basically in the process of establishing a center on campus, as well as um, a remote form of the center that addresses all aspects of reproductive justice, from gender-based violence to access to reproductive care regardless of gender, as well as information on safe places for more information. Um, so the center will provide things like reproductive health materials, pregnancy tests, hygiene products, condoms, plan B, uh, menstrual products at a reduced price, as well as advice on things like birth control, Title IX, um, other sexual health and reproductive initiatives, as well as frequently asked questions for topics such as the trans health initiative and abortions. And all information provided will be phrased in a gender neutral and inclusive way, and all products provided will be ethically sourced and sustainable. So I would really advise you guys to look out for our website, which will be launched pretty soon. Uh, and finally, on the sexperts end of things, you can follow at UCLA Sexperts on Instagram. We produce a lot of um, educational posts um, from everything under the sun related to sex, um, talking about anything from how to establish boundaries to sex and gender to how to put a condom on. Um, we've got everything for all different levels of sexual know-how. Um, we're a team of about 30 volunteers and we work to educate the UCLA campus community on all things sex, gender, and relationships. Our primary goal is to promote open discussion and education regarding inclusive sexual health and aim to increase awareness of pleasure, gender, identity, and sexual health. We host workshops, panels, and other various activities and presentations throughout the school year and also in the summer. Uh, we engage dynamically with the campus and we hope to bridge the gap between students and the discussion about safer sex. If that sounds like something that you're interested in participating um, in, we open, we open applications in the fall. So check us out on Instagram. Um, and submit your application and then we would love to get to know you and work with you um, if you're interested in furthering that communication on campus. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much uh, to all of the work that you guys have done here today, um, to APC for hosting this. Uh, I've had a really, really nice time um, and I really love sharing with you guys. If you've gotten to this point in the podcast, I'd like to thank you for your time. I hope you learned something new and I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. Mm -hmm.